Well, as most of you know, uh, Lorene and I have uh, four sons, uh, adult sons, two of whom are married. Um, but what you may not know is that the two sons who are married both have wives who are expecting children this year. One's due in July and the other's due in October, which means we are going to triple our um, collection of grandchildren by the end of this year, what I call a bumper crop year uh, for us. Now, the two sons whose wives are expecting were, visited us over Mother's Day. And one of those evenings, I was sitting out um, on our patio in the back uh, by a fire pit. We, made, we like to do that, made a little fire, and the two boys and I were sitting out there. And we just got to talking about um, the, the amazing uh, process of becoming a dad, one for the second time and the other for the first time, and the, the um, amazing process of childbirth. That was the topic of our conversation. Um, miraculously, we talked about the the witnessing the process of childbirth, because technically, you know, as fathers, we don't actually uh, go through the process. And I can only tell them it's, it's one of the most amazing and unforgettable and emotional experiences of my life. You feel, um, you laugh and you, you cry and you feel uh, a fear that borders on terror. Uh, you, um, you have wonder and in the end, just pure joy. And, but what you don't feel as a father is the pain of childbirth. Well, we were expecting our very first. Uh, we went through all the classes that, that expecting parents do, where moms learn how to breathe, you know, and dads learn how to encourage that process. But when the labor pains actually started, I was in just completely unfamiliar territory. I remember Lorene was sitting on the side of the hospital bed in the, in the maternity wing, and she got this look on her face that I, that I didn't recognize completely. It was a look of uh, kind of stillness and sort of intense concentration. And I didn't know what it was, and so I wanted to help. And so what I said was, does it, like, hurt? <laughs> yep, I said that. <laughs> and I like to say, and then I saw a look on her face that I did recognize. <laughs> you are such a meathead. She never said that, but that's... We're in a series now that we're calling The Greatest Chapter from Romans chapter 8. And so far we've seen that the Apostle Paul says, for those in Christ, there is no condemnation. That in Christ we now live according to the Spirit. That is, we have a new power source, a new operating system. And then last week we saw that Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to affirm, remind us that we are the adopted sons and daughters of God that we have new identity, and that we have a, a new inheritance that we look forward to. Now today, we're going to dig into a passage where Paul goes even deeper into that new inheritance, using the image of childbirth, of all things, to explain both the source of all suffering and the hope that we have in Christ. And we're going to look at Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. You can watch the screens or follow in your personal Bible as I read. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, 
groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now for my money, um, this is one of the most densely packed theological paragraphs in all of Paul's writing. There are others. Paul had a brilliant mind, and he writes uh, very densely packed paragraphs, but this certainly is one of them. And we're going to see that the entire story arc of the Bible is in this paragraph. Uh, Creation, fall, redemption, and what theologians call consummations, all there. But as we begin, I want to point out just a couple of things. Uh, First, notice that he affirms our new identity in Christ. Verse 19, the revealing of the sons of God, that's us. Verse 21, to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, that's us, that's our identity. And notice when Paul repeats certain words, and whenever you read Paul, notice how he uses language and when he repeats certain words or phrases. For example, he uses the creation four different times. For the creation waits. For the creation was subjected. The creation itself, the whole creation, has been groaning. Four different times. He mentions groan or groaning twice. Verse 22, the whole creation has been groaning. Verse 23, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. (coughs) He uses glory twice. Verse 18, the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then at the end, the glory of the children of God. He uses wait or waiting three times. Verse 19, for the creation waits. Verse 23, we wait eagerly. Verse 25, we wait for it with patience. And then finally, he uses the word hope five times. Verses 24 and 25, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what is unseen, we wait for it with patience. Now, What I point out is that all these words that he uses multiple times are connected in Paul's thought guided by the Holy Spirit. I want to take us through what I see are the three greats of this passage. The great groaning, the great redemption, and the great hope. Let's begin with the great groaning. Uh, We live in a really interesting time in history. I don't know that we spend a lot of time, most of us, thinking about this first part of it, but By many measures, we are now, right now, living in what some call the golden age of human history. Let me explain. For example, did you know that right now, the rate of global poverty, the rate of global illiteracy, the rate of global child labor and infant mortality are falling faster than at any other time in human history? We're making progress on all those things. Did you know that according to the World Health Organization, since 1990, more than 2 billion more people have gained access to clean water than had it before? And Chapel Street's been part of that by working together with organizations like LifeWater in Africa. Over the last 40 years, the percentage of the world's population that lives in extreme poverty has been reduced from 37% to less than 10%. Single digits for the first time in human history. We've also been part of that by... Uh, Many of you have supported uh, a child in Ecuador through compassion. So all that, we're making progress against all these things, the golden age of human history, and yet the world is still reeling from a global pandemic (coughs) that some estimate have taken the lives of over 6 million people worldwide. 
We watched the war in Ukraine drag on week after week after week. The recent shooting in Buffalo was the 198th mass shooting in the U.S. this year. Or consider natural disasters. 45 tornadoes touched down in the southern U.S. on one day this spring, April 5th. In 2020, wildfires in Australia destroyed 46 million acres and killed an estimated 1 billion animals. In 2021, floods in India and Nepal claimed over 100 lives. In our own community, just last week, as we prayed about, a young high school girl lost her life in a tragic fashion. This is what Paul calls the great groaning, and he begins in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, this is the central passage of this entire text today. Everything else Paul says is explaining this verse. Paul's acknowledging that suffering and pain are real and pervasive in our experience, while at the same time, he's pointing ahead to a time when all suffering will end and what he calls glory will be revealed. But before he gets to glory, he acknowledges that suffering produces groaning. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, this is a bit surprising to me. I don't know about you, but this surprises me a little bit because he doesn't start where I would start. I would start with human suffering, human groaning. But he doesn't. He starts with the suffering and groaning of the whole creation. Now, what does that mean? If we go back to the very beginning of the biblical story, (coughs) excuse me, after Adam and Eve disobey the loving command of God, remember Genesis 1 through 3, we read, and to Adam he, God, said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. That's an incredibly significant line. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So all creation, the Bible says, is under the curse of sin. Nothing in creation is as God intended it to be. Remember in Genesis, when God finished all his creative works, he said, it is very good. What he means in that line is that there was no sin, there was no evil, there was no suffering, there was no disease, there was no death. It was very good, but all that changed, and all of creation is now under the curse of sin. Therefore, the whole creation groans, Paul says, right up to the present day. And then he says that great groaning includes us, verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now there's a ton there. So all creation groans, and we as human beings living in a broken world, we also groan. Now notice, Paul's very clear. Even those of us who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we also groan. Now, what does he mean by that? If you look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, we we can see a hint. But in fact, he says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So first fruits is Paul's way of talking about resurrection. He's saying that even those of us who have experienced by faith the power of the resurrection, 
Those of us who have been adopted as sons and daughters, those of us who are now fellow heirs with Christ himself, we also groan, he says. Why? Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. That word means emptiness or purposelessness. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Who is that? That's God. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. That word corruption means rottenness or decomposition. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So he's saying, we groan because everything has been infected by the curse of sin. And is therefore subjected to futility, and the result is death. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We groan because all creation is in bondage to corruption and decay. That is, simply put, we live in a fallen world. Then Paul says in verse 22, for we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The pains of childbirth. Now Paul here uses an interesting word. It's a single word in ancient Greek. Translated travail, what we would call labor. And can you see it? This is the first glimmer of hope in all the bad news and all the groaning. The whole creation is groaning, but groaning, not just, notice, not just groaning because of there is brokenness and pain. Paul says creation awaits with eager longing. We wait in eager expectation. So the groaning is both the suffering of the fallen world and, and the knowledge that something better is coming but is not yet here. The whole of creation is in labor pains because something is in the process of being born. Something new is coming. New life is coming. And that leads us to the second part of today, uh, which is the great redemption. The great redemption. I want to start, start here with a question. What's the, what's the worst job you ever had? Most of us have had crummy jobs at some point in our lives. A lot of times when we're younger and you have to do almost anything to have a job. Uh, maybe high school or college, work is hard, dirty, you got minimum wage. I think the lowest minimum wage I can remember in my lifetime was like $2.50. Some of you maybe remember when it was even lower than that, but that's what I remember. Uh, one of my bad jobs was a summer job I had in college in the late uh, 70s when my brother and I both worked for a construction company uh, in Florida. <laughs> <clears throat> we had to be at the warehouse at 6 a.m. in the morning, uh, delivering building materials to job sites all over central Florida. One time, we had to deliver a um, truckload of uh, sheets of drywall to an office building site. The sheets were 8 feet by 4 feet. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about, the sheets that you hang up and make, to make walls out of. 8 feet by 4 feet by 3 quarter inch thick. So it was, this was heavy stuff, sometimes called sheetrock. Uh, we not only had to deliver them, but we had to carry them by hand up up uh, six flights of stairs in a six-story office building uh, that was being built. On top of that, uh, the building wasn't finished yet, so there was, no, there was no air conditioning, and they had no windows that opened. So inside that building in central Florida, it had to be 110 degrees once you're inside. And we had to carry these things by hand 
up six flights of stairs and drop them off on every floor. That was our job, and we got paid $4 an hour. And we did that for three days. We were so tired some days that during our lunch break, we laid down on cement floors, raw cement floor, and used concrete blocks for pillows and fell dead asleep. It was so physically challenging. We thought about, we talked about quitting every hour of all three of those days. Now, but imagine, that's just a crummy job, right? Hard job. But imagine that uh, at the end of those three days, I knew I was going to receive for that bad job, uh, not $4 an hour, but $10 an hour. Would that change how I experienced that job? Well, maybe a little bit. But what if I knew I was going to receive $100 an hour? Or how about $1,000 an hour for that job for three days? Or what if I was going to get $100,000 an hour for three days? Would that change how I experienced that job? You bet it would, right? I'd be like to my brother, hey, come on, man. Come on, I know it stinks, but payday is coming, right? Because what we hope for, what we know in the future can actually change how we experience the present. That's what Paul's talking about. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul says what's coming is not a payday, but redemption. That word redemption means to buy back, to ransom. In ancient Rome, a slave could purchase um, his or her freedom by paying back the purchase price the owner paid for them. Uh, The whole story of the Bible is a story of redemption, of being bought back by one who has the resources. God created all things good, Genesis 1. Human beings destroyed or disobeyed the good command of God, and sin entered the world, and through sin came death and bondage and great groaning. God provided then a redeemer who purchased forgiveness with his blood, who redeemed us from death by his resurrection, and now promises to redeem our bodies and indeed all of creation when he comes again. Now Paul describes this redemption in two main ways here. First, glory, he says. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Now what is glory? In our culture, in our day and time, we think of glory usually as fame, close, celebrity, great accomplishments maybe, or maybe even great beauty. You know, mountain sunrise, something like that. But in the Bible, glory almost always refers to the power, holiness, and presence of God himself. In Exodus 33, remember the story when Moses begs God to show him his glory. He wants to know fully who God is, and God says his glory is so great that no man can see it fully and live. So he hides Moses in a cleft of a rock so Moses can only peer out and see the trailing edge, the back of God's glory as it passes by. In other words, you can only see a part of it now because it's so great. When Moses in chapter 34 of Exodus would would go visit with God and talk with him, when he would come down, his face was so bright from having been in the glory of God that they had to put a veil over his face so they could look at him. At Jesus' transfiguration in the New Testament, Matthew tells us that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became like light and the disciples who were with him fell terrified to the ground. Glory. Paul is saying that the groaning, after all the groaning, the glory of Christ in its fullness will be revealed. We will see him as he is. But more than that, in Ephesians 3, Paul writes, but our citizenship is in heaven. 
And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, watch this, transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You see that? It's telling us that when Jesus comes again, we will be made like him in our bodies. Now what does that mean? In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Talking about our bodies. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. There's that word again. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now that's an oxymoron if I've ever heard one. What's a spiritual body? Those words don't seem to go together. Listen to how one writer describes it. This is the promise of a spiritual body suitable for the full life and glory of heaven. A body like Jesus has. One that can eat but doesn't need to eat. One that defies the physical limits and boundaries of our physical world. The spiritual body will have no expiration date. And age will be meaningless. It will be a real body, but a body that, like the spirit, knows no decay, has no need of physical sustenance to keep it alive. I still struggle to grasp what that is. I just know it's better than this. Right? His glory will be fully revealed, not only in our bodies, in risen new bodies, but in the new heaven and new earth, the new creation itself. Revelation chapter 21. And then John writes, I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Notice, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The Bible teaches our bodies will be redeemed. All of creation will be redeemed. I was thinking about that this week. Think about it this way. One of our sons took this photo last week as he and his wife were traveling through Glacier National Park out in Montana. Now my guess was when you see a photo like this, or when he stood there looking at that, several words came to his mind. What would come to your mind? Beautiful, breathtaking, maybe even glorious. But let me tell you something. That's fallen. That's the world in groaning. That's the world that's in bondage to corruption and decomposition and decay. Can you begin to imagine what the new heaven and new earth will be like? No, you can't. Because here's what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 2.9 What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So just as the creation is groaning and we are groaning, everything will be redeemed by glory. Second, redemption will bring freedom, he says, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption to, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, the phrase set free means to be released from bondage. So Paul is saying here, 
as his adopted children, we've already been set free from bondage to sin. That takes place at our salvation. But that we will be set free from the bondage of death itself, and that the whole creation will be set free from its groaning and into a glory that we can't begin to imagine. That's what Paul's talking about. And this leads us to the third part of today, which is the great hope. The great hope. We all know, I think, if we think about it, that there are two kinds of hope in our experience. Uh, one kind of hope is saying, I hope it doesn't rain today. Right? Hope it doesn't rain today. And as human beings, we tend to live most of our lives in that hope, which is hope is wishful thinking. I hope it doesn't rain today. But it might. The other kind of hope is to say, I hope spring comes this year. That's a different kind of hope. Because that's hope as certainty. It may or may not rain today, but spring always comes. Although here in Illinois, eh, we have to wait a little bit. Verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In this hope we've been saved. What's that hope? We have no condemnation in Christ. In Christ we've been adopted as the sons and daughters of God. In Christ we have the Spirit dwelling in us. All this already accomplished. We have this hope. But the groaning remains. The work of redemption has not yet been consummated. There is still one great hope that remains. Here's how Paul describes that hope in Titus chapter 2. The blessed hope, he writes, is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our hope. Peter says it this way in a rather long passage from Peter, 1 Peter, but follow it with me. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's exactly what Paul's saying here in Romans chapter 8. Now notice, verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, groaning, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's coming. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. What we hope for that has not yet happened rushes back and informs how we experience the groaning of life now. I mentioned earlier that Paul uses the word wait three times and the word hope five times. These words are connected throughout the Bible. In fact, they're almost used in an interchangeable way. The word he uses for wait means to wait eagerly for something. To wait with great expectation, kind of like a child waiting for Christmas morning. The word hope means to expect or trust in what you're waiting for. So Paul is saying our hope is certain, and our hope informs our waiting. Our waiting, in other words, is shaped and filled by the content of our hope. 
me try to make this personal, because I think this is personal. Uh, my dad, I've told stories about him throughout the years, was the youngest of six children, in the tail end of the Great Depression, and his father died when he was only five years old. The summer after his father died, his mother sent him to live with a relative and uh, lived on a farm away from uh, his town because she couldn't afford to feed all six children. Uh, my dad has a few, very few memories of that time, mostly because they're very sad, but he does remember going out uh, every day uh, to sit by the side of the road that ran, in, country road that ran in front of this relative's farm. Uh, he was only five years old, but he uh, believed that maybe his older brother, who drove a milk truck uh, to work for work, would maybe drive by sometime during the day, and he could just wave, and his brother could wave back, and he wouldn't feel quite so alone. But his brother never came because his route went somewhere else. Today, my dad is 89 years old. Many of you know this. He's living in a memory care facility in Ohio. He was a pastor for over 60 years, serving 10 different congregations throughout the U.S., preached thousands of sermons, I don't know how many, led hundreds and hundreds of people to faith in Christ throughout his career. He had a wonderful memory. He at one time had a, over 100 chapters of the Bible memorized. Chapters, not verses. If you got them started, it took hours from the finish. Right? My dad loved sports, played ping pong, tennis, golf, loved to sail. Today, he does none of those things. He still knows us as family, but he struggles to remember what happened yesterday or even five minutes ago. All the siblings are gone. My mom, his wife, has 65, 65 years, died a year and a half ago. So in some ways, my dad is still sitting by the side of the road again and waiting. Now, some would say he's waiting for death. And in a lot of ways, that's true. But I would say, and the Apostle Paul would say, he's not waiting for death. He's waiting for glory. Glory. And the truth is, we're all waiting. We're all waiting the same way. The whole creation groans, and we too groan, and we suffer, and we wait. But we wait in hope, because we wait for glory. And speaking of this hope, one of my favorite writers, Frederick Buechner, says, what's lost is nothing to what's found. And all the death in the world that ever was set next to life would scarcely fill a cup. That's true. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, today we thank you for your word. We thank you for this ancient letter written to encourage people living in a broken world and facing all kinds of groaning. In other words, people just like us. Lord, remind us that we are living in the middle of your great story of redemption. That yes, the world groans and we groan at times. But even now, you are preparing a glory that we can't begin to imagine. So may this great and certain hope strengthen and encourage each one of us and fill us now, today, with great joy. We pray these things in your name. Amen.